welcome to week three of Food Week on Casting Views, a podcast with me, Dan. And me, Lou. Where we pick a subject at random normally each week, except this is food because it's food month, and we cast our views on it. Special episode because we've got a fantastic guest this week. But before we do, we'll just play a promo from another friend of ours. It's the just in time podcast where justin and carter are going to talk to you again about various things but mostly it's going to feature beer at some point in it so so let's hear from them we were looking for a laid-back comedy show that covers current events beer reviews and movie reviews we couldn't find one so we made the damn thing ourselves the justin in time show find it wherever you listen to podcasts and we're back. Um, sorry, just before you go any further, because yeah. you called me out on this last week, you went week three of Food Week. Oh, did I? Yeah. And you called me out on it last week, so I was <laughs> never going to let you get away with it. You said, no, I thought I've got Do you him. know what? I've had that in my mind all week, because when I've done the tweets and everything, I've been writing. For... Okay, so yeah, fair play. You've caught me. One, 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 week, one. Week one, three one. of Food Month, of course. <laughs> Look, we've got a guest. Let's, let's be professional. So... <laughs> So, yeah, so yeah, come on, yeah. guys. <laughs> so this week we have got Brendan from Unsheft on us. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on because I think we both said we kind of started our podcast roughly the same time, didn't we? That's correct. And I think I found your podcast because I looked at my f- interests, which were food was number one and I think I, yeah, I came that's how I found your podcast and I think I reached out to you on a couple of occasions because I just yeah I, I think it's been a fascinating podcast to listen to thank you and you know also a big thank you because you've kind of arranged this little brain trust we've got of podcasts so, yeah so you've helped garner a bit of support and and a bit of community it's such a fun thing. Like, it's such a good group of people, isn't it? You know, we've got a lot of really great shows in there. There's you, there's me, there's Antonio with Coltworthy, Josh with Talking Smack, Leo with Voluntary Input, the Wilsons. Who could forget about the Wilsons? Um, I don't know. Do you curse on your show? I don't know if we can say Yeah, that. yeah. We're yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Right, fuck my work life and all those fuckers are cool. Just in time. It's just, it's a really good group of people. And the weird thing is, like, the... I, I had such a clear idea of what I was trying to do to get everybody together. And then my life just went like, <laughs> it went sideways so quickly that I feel like it's been just the most hands-off thing. And the cool thing about that for me is seeing how it's just kind of like grown on its own instead of like originally, I think the the chef in me, because that's what, uh, since this is food month, I guess I can talk about food a little bit. That's what food is all about is like controlling variables, you know, the size you cut your onions, etc. So my brain kind of kicks in that direction initially. And the fact that like everything kind of pulled me away from social media gave the group this amazing opportunity for everybody to start developing their own voices. And now we've got pictures of you wearing like a cartoon <laughs> bikini advertising like, you know, only dance sites. <laughs> Lou, Lou, yeah, you don't know about this and you're not going to know about this because that's what I was going to say. We, um, I we, love um, that I just put you on the spot here. It's like, Lou, yeah, he's got some explaining to do. There's an only Dan site in the works right now. Also got what? Casting stews. Like you got, you got several side projects in the works right now. Yeah, Lou, I haven't told you about this yet, but yeah, you've got some work coming up. But yes, yeah, so thank you for that, Brendan, because like I said, yeah, sure. it's, the, the one thing is, as you've kindly pointed out, we're not afraid to have a bit of fun at our own expense <laughs> as well. But no, it really is a good group. It really is a good group. <laughs> But yeah, so your podcast, I think we just wanted to, to ask you a little bit about your podcast. So yeah, t- tell me how it started, because obviously you've got 
quite a, a history in the food industry, haven't you? Sure. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people would know some of the people I've worked for. I've worked for David Chang for several years. Uh, he's a really big name in, you know, not just uh, food in the States, but like he's a big name in Canada. He's a big name in Australia. Um, he's he's a pretty influential chef. Uh, I worked with him for a couple of years as a chef for uh, this company called Happy Cooking under a man named Gabriel Stolman, which is a big deal restaurant. He owns a big deal restaurant company in New York City. So I've been around the block a couple of times and uh, I love food. I absolutely love food. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing uh, nothing I like better than talking about like all the intricacies of food and how it relates to, you know, uh, chemistry and biology and history and, uh, you know, the artistry behind it. It's just, it's a nexus point of so many things. And I think like just observing that nexus point and kind of living there in my conversations yeah. is something that I particularly enjoy. Um, the pandemic sort of had, as you know, it did for me, as I'm sure it did a lot of people, had me rethinking what my involvement with it was because I had, you know, my job taken away from me pretty early mm -hmm. on. Like the restaurant industry was hit harder than not every industry, but it was it was hit really hard um, by the pandemic. So uh, I got to thinking what my relationship with food professionally was. And I get to thinking about all these things that I like about it, the history, the biology, the science, et cetera. And um, that's kind of where the show came from. And uh, I got in touch with a friend of mine who I was, uh, who I went to the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America with. He's my, he was my roommate at the time. And, you know, we start talking about like how unfortunate it is that we sort of lost our jobs to the pandemic and, you know, we're possessed of this huge passion for food and this passion for making food and finding the, the hidden sides of food <laughs> and how unfortunate it is that the, the professional world just kind of keeps knocking us on our ass because this is the second recession. Like the pandemic was definitely the worst one, but we had another one yeah. back in 2008. Yeah. And, you know, it gets to a point where it's like, well, why is this industry so hard when there's so much love, you know? Like, why can't it be the case that, you know, this love turns into something that isn't as abusive professionally as it's frequently ended up being? And, you know, we get to talking about how uh, we're both not chefs anymore. That's the name of the podcast is Unchefed. And, you know, from there, we start having all these really heavy, really terrible conversations about like racism and food. And, you know, all of them, I, I agree that they're all problems, but I think we started feeling like very embarrassed about being sort of privileged in our perspectives and we're like okay well let's take a step back from like the heaviness and the preachiness and try to have a show that's a little bit more like well what is interesting about food like we started with a supreme court episode on whether a tomato uh was a fruit or a vegetable the supreme court of the u.s <laughs> argued that uh, a tomato was a fruit which is why it's or it was a vegetable which is why it's designated as a vegetable so we started thinking that it was hilarious to think of like all these high-minded yeah. legalese people <laughs> that represent like the highest court in the land being like well you don't eat tomato as a dessert and you eat every other fruit as a dessert Therefore, the tomato is a vegetable. So you, know? you, you say that, but we had something similar over here. Lou, I don't remember. Did we had, you? There's, well, there's, but not with that. There's a cake or biscuit called a Jaffa cake. Right? A Jaffa cake? Yeah, Jaffa cake. And it's like, um, it's like a, a sponge base with a little orange filling with chocolate over the top. And I think there was an argument about whether it was a cake or a biscuit. And the reason being because of VAT, I think the tax on it. Yeah. And so it did. That's... There was a court case. So it's, it's crazy what can go through, you know, about yes. food. 
That's right. And can I say that's like the most British thing to argue about whether something's <laughs> cake or a biscuit? Or at least it seems like to me. But it, it did. It came back to taxes. And that was sort of like with this first episode, we we're like, okay, well, we touched up on something funny, you know, thinking about these high minded legal people arguing about whether a tomato is a fruit or a vegetable based on when you serve it in the course of a meal. That's kind of funny when you think about it. But then we start realizing there's like a deeper thing that we're touching into. And that is, like you said, the taxation. The whole reason that they wanted to designate it as a, a vegetable instead of a fruit was because of a fruit tax that was. Yeah. Uh, happening at the time, you know, um, or a vegetable tax. I can't remember. Either way, there was a tax and somebody was trying to get around it. So uh, from there, from this funny conversation, that's kind of fun to have, you know, uh, we start hitting on some really interesting points that like actually affect our day to day lives. Like, what is it about distribution that requires these taxes? What is it about, you know, uh, the taxation that actually benefits businesses or people outside of businesses, you know, and it does have lasting impacts. I don't know if you've heard about this on your side of the pond, but I think it was the Reagan administration actually uh, declared that pizza was a vegetable. Really? No, I hadn't yeah. <laughs> during the during the eighties. <laughs> yeah, and and you can trace this directly back to that Supreme Court case where they declared that vet, that a tomato was a vegetable. So it goes from like this legal specification of tomato being a vegetable, which it's not; it's uh, botanically a fruit. Wow. Uh, into well, tomatoes on pizza. So. <laughs> <laughs> And that's that's a that's a funny that's a funny conversation to have, but it's also like it's impacting people's lives. It's like determining yeah. like what we eat and how healthy it is, et cetera. So, but and that amazing. was kind of yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it's amazing how it all comes back to tax or money, uh-huh. doesn't it? That's the overriding mm-hmm. thing there. Mm-hmm. Well, funnily enough, as well, the example that you used here with the whole Jaffa cake situation. Do you ever remember as well? Here we had the pasty tax. No, oh god, I don't remember that one. The pasty tax. Yeah, the pasty tax. Obviously, Cornish pasties, pies, and that sort of thing. Oh, I, um, know the, I know the, those are so good. <laughs> there was there was a piece of legislation that came in, and basically, if you cooked pasties and pies, but they weren't heated and you didn't keep them oh, hot, yeah, you didn't yeah. pay the pasty tax on them. But if you were a business that cooked them and then put them, for instance, in a heat box, they were classed as a hot food, and therefore you had to pay an additional tax on them. So you had bakers that didn't have to pay the tax who could pull pies out of the oven and technically sell them hot, but they weren't considered to have been heated. And so as a result, were exempt. But the moment that you put it under to keep it warm, that's it, you had to pay tax on it. It was a whole argument because I know that there were um, businesses like fish and chip shops, for instance, were really up in arms about it because they thought all we're doing is keeping it warm. And all of a sudden you want us to pay our customers to pay more for it. But yeah, it's strange the way that it does go to like the highest law in the land when it's something so so menial almost. Yeah. And I, I mean, I look at that conversation and having been in food i know that when you store something hot there's uh you know you have to have some type of health regulation like uh it's it's just the truth that if you know something is held within the range of 40 to 140 degrees it's in what's called the danger zone so you need to have like uh regulations to make sure that people aren't getting sick like you have to time it etc etc which requires extra bodies and extra labor um so you know that's an argument on one hand and then the other one is like well i'm running the business do not trust me to do that labor myself without having to pay you extra money like so there's and and those arguments start getting like really at the core of who we are like you know um and what we're willing to pay for and you know what we feel about having to pay to begin with so in this way like food is just so like 
I, I want to say deliciously, but that sounds corny. It's like so, <laughs> it's so deliciously it, revealing about who we are as a people, you know? And that's the thing, right? And I don't want to keep flattering you, but, you know, I'm sure you won't mind. No, well, go ahead. One, yeah, <laughs> yeah <totally>. It's fine. <laughs> one of the episodes, I think the first episodes uh, kind of uh, that when I, I contacted you, and I've, I remember mentioning it to Lou, was the one about certain chains in the States reveal your political leanings. Yeah, I found that fascinating because I don't think we've kind of got that concept here, Lou, have we? I don't no, think it's... no, not at all. <laughs> and that was what made me sit back and think, you know, yes, obviously food is. I, I love food. I mean, our Twitter chats should show that. But, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and and know that there is a lot of difficult sort of discussions and stuff in the background. I mean, but it's mm-hmm. just when I heard that and I thought, yeah, these these are kind of some of the conversations you're having. So that's why I remember saying to people is to listen to yours because it's about food it's centered around food but it's not always about the food itself and and this is why it's fantastic and and it's like you know it makes you think in the you know in the states does it really have that much of an impact where you eat yeah i i really appreciate that it does i are you you're asking if it does have an impact on where i eat personally or Or, well or or is there an element to certain people will only eat in Ah. in certain places yeah yeah well a lot of the times it it I think it gets back to with that conversation specifically, um, it's really the way that we structure our business over here is, you know, if you want to start a restaurant and you're not rich, you got to go find investors. Uh, And if you want to look for investors, you have to have a sales pitch. And if you have a sales pitch, you have to be asking who your customer base is. And once you start thinking about your customer base, you start saying like, okay, well, where do they go? What do they like? What do they do? What do they wear? Et cetera. And I think that with a country that's as politicized as the US is, it starts like becoming so like ingrained in like what you're doing. It's like, okay, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a, a, I don't know, biscuits and gravy restaurant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to immediately start thinking like, I want Southerners. Okay. Well, the South predominantly votes Republican. Okay. So since they vote predominantly Republican, I can assume that they're conservative. And since they're conservative, I can assume that, you know, I should have this kind of value structure behind my restaurant. And uh, the funny thing is, is people don't realize just how impacted they are by that, like by their, that subconscious, like, cause once you start going in there, you start actually solidifying your values because like then you go into the the biscuits and gravy restaurant where you're just like subliminally given all of these uh very specific tailored political messages that sort of uh cement how you feel about your own leaning and it also attracts other people that have that same similar leaning and i think in a very real way you can look at like how restaurants have you know sort of incorporated this political standard as one of the reasons that uh in the US, we're facing such a divide right now where people can't seem to understand the other side's perspective at any point. Mm. And a lot of that is because, you know, these targeted places that they can go to and just right. be surrounded by only people that think and look the way that they think and look, you know. And that's a that, and that's a that's a business model, you know. Yeah. Blew me away hearing that because uh, again, like I said, you know, obviously we've got left or right leaning papers and mm-hmm. social sites, but never thought if I chose to eat in this burger joint or that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like, and there's a funny thing about like uh, the liberalism and the conservatism in, in food over here is that it's like, it's not even actual liberalism or conservatism. It's just like all theatrics to a degree. Right. I heard an amazing British comedian who is a very conservative comedian uh, talking about uh, the minimum wage in England. And he was like, okay, so 
uh, I can't remember what the specific figure was, but it actually ended up being lower than like a parking meter was charging somebody per hour <laughs> in yeah. this this one place in front of a a, a a fast food restaurant. And the comedian was talking about like how crappy it must be to be like one of the employees who's like sitting there working at the we'll just say McDonald's. And seeing this parking meter out front making more money, making more money than, yeah. than they are. <laughs> but the food industry like, that's, is that's tough. amazing. That's I'm I, I lean very liberal and progressive, but I was like, that's that's a really good conservative joke about you know. Like, but but you'll know more than anyone though. The food industry is really tough, isn't it? It's it's not one you want to go into thinking you're going to be like a superstar straight away or or, or making a fortune straight away, is it? Absolutely not. I mean, I think that you're you're looking at things the wrong way. Food at its best is shared with people. Like you should be sitting yeah. down at a table. Like you should yeah. be uh, with friends and family. You know, other than like if you're not doing that, if you take the social element out, then it's really just you trying to survive and get nutrients. You know, and celebrity I think is exclusive to uh, community. Like you're specifically as as you've had an episode on celebrity. I remember list like yeah. what is the what is the role of celebrity? And I, I don't think that you become a celebrity uh, through like communal means. Like you're supposed to be like to some degree above, like, I, I don't want to use the word better, but like you're above the common people, you know? Mm. And the idea of becoming a celebrity chef or having that be a, a goal of yours to get like credit or acclaim, I think is really ignoring, you know, this, this sense of community that I think food food is at its best with. Do you think the rise of the celebrity chef has helped or hindered the food industry? Um, I guess it depends on which perspective you're looking at it from. I think that we've definitely got more interesting food out of it. It's one of those, like the celebrity chef is kind of a phenomenon that's like put, like it's injected a lot of competitiveness into the industry. You know, um, you're no longer just serving people. You're trying to one up people like i've got to have like the smartest combination of fruit and yeah. cheese you know or whatever um so i think that it's made some better food but i think that it's really harmed the industry in general like i think that it's really harmed uh you know our ability to pay people what they're worth or to even understand what we're worth in the industry you know um i think that it gets conflated a lot of the times because your value is tied to your ability to stand out instead of your ability to just do labor and get an adequate you know paycheck yeah. for it <laughs> it just feels to me that over here especially it's just it's just a, an excuse to slap a, a name on a restaurant or on a, a brand of food and it's just easy you know rather than give the the opportunity to some other chefs or or you know a group of people it's just easy just to make that a jamie oliver restaurant or to make that a gordon ramsay i mean i've been over to to the states a few times and i see gordon ramsay everywhere you know it's like i'm trying to go to the states for american food and, and all i see is gordon ramsay restaurants even actually i did have fish and chips in a gordon ramsay fish shop i think it was in in vegas and it's like well, well i might as well because he's everywhere were they good <laughs> that was nice actually it was all right <laughs> <laughs> that's good um yeah, I I don't know. I think that the whole idea behind um, celebrity chef and like getting to celebrity chef status, uh, you can look at it from like an ethics perspective and say, okay, well, it's important for me to have a big name because I've got to be able to pay all of my employees uh, enough money. Like you can say, like I, I actually do want to pay them the value of their labor 
right? And in order to do that, what I need to do is I need to get as big of a business as possible. And the way that I get a bigger business is by getting my name out there. Right. So um, I think that it's a bit like an addiction, though, where it's like you keep trying to get bigger and you keep justifying it with things that aren't like just pay them more. Like don't expand. Like, yeah. Save yeah. the money for expansion and pay your employees what they're worth without trying to expand. Uh, it's not that simple. It's a little reductive for me to say that. But I think that that's something that you'll see a lot of uh, big league restaurateurs and celebrity chefs use as a as an excuse is, you know, I've got a lot of people that I need to take care of. And, um, you know in order to deal with the fact that restaurants have such low profit margins and restaurant workers work such difficult jobs for, you know, with such a difficult schedule in order to justify, like, you know, in order to be able to rather pay them what they're worth and give them the benefits that they deserve. I need to kind of group rates. Like I have to go approach insurance companies and I got to have like, if I can say I need 400 plans for 400 employees, then, you know, maybe I'll get like a 20% discount. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, so, and I think that's where the perspective that a lot of these big names have that, you know, they used to justify is like, well, yeah. I'm, I'm actually doing it for the people because I can get better rates. And I can actually afford to give them benefits. I can afford to give them better paychecks, um, which seems like a decent argument on its face, but I, I don't think it is, yeah. you know, just pay people better. <laughs> I could talk to you all night about this, uh, Brendan, but this isn't the reason why I got you on the, on the show. I was going to we'll, say, we should talk about food. I'm trying we'll, to we'll go out into that in a second, but Lou, was there anything about the, about Brendan on the podcast before we move on? No, I did have a question that you were leading into kind of with the celebrity chef thing as well, because I feel like in recent years, and I've got one big primary example for this, is how do you feel about, for instance, the rise of what is almost like the social media chef, I guess you would say. <laughs> so for instance, you've seen the rise of Salt Bay, who's become a worldwide phenomenon and is opening restaurants oh, yeah. Yeah. and selling steaks for covered in gold for two thousand dollars and then is turning around and doing you know fried onions for 112 dollars that sort of thing so mm -hmm. what do you think and do you think that that in and of itself because to me when i look at restaurants now and instances like him i look at food and i feel like it's now more theatrics as opposed to actually about the food if that makes sense with the way that the world's kind of going at the minute yeah, um, I think I think that you're spot on in saying that. I, I think that the trick is to say, like, I can spend my entertainment dollars any way that I want to spend my entertainment dollars. You know, I can order a hundred and twenty dollar uh, thing of fried onions or I could, you know, rent a jet ski or I could do it. I think that the only issue that I have with that is people have they have difficulty separating uh, I think they have difficulty separating out that it's pure entertainment you know um he's not a good he's not a great show. like his uh his restaurant what is it nostra or nostra yeah yeah, yeah. nostra <laughs> yeah and it's not a good restaurant like nobody that knows anything about food thinks it's a good restaurant <laughs> you know and i think the people that want to go there to get like a funny instagram picture that's what they get and yeah, like yeah. you know that's that's fine that's a, that's a fine value if that's what you're after as far as what i feel about it like encroaching into like what i would consider to be better food <laughs> you know i think that the fact that it's like sort of spoken in the same language based purely off price point is is an issue like you look at a restaurant like um uh 11 madison park for instance or uh 
uh, La Bernardine would probably be a better example. Like these are these are two New York City restaurants. The uh, Eleven Madison Park has had some issues recently switching over to a vegetarian menu. I'm not going to get into any of that, but they're, they've they've got names and they've got respect from people in the industry for technique and sourcing and the deliciousness of their food and the creativity of their menus. Um, and then you look at a place like uh, Nusrat, and it's in the same price point. And I think a lot of people are like, okay, well, they're the same price point, so they kind of have the same value. You know, they kind of have the same, like, they're fulfilling the same role. And you'll see some people be like, well, which one of these two do I want to go out to without, like, really thinking about, you know, whether they want to have, like, a really technique-driven menu that shows a lot of talent or whether they want to go to kind of, like, an Instagram-centric, you know, um, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that per se, having those options, but I would like to see better education uh, yeah. from people. I'd like to see them understand the difference between like what a chef like Eric Repair is doing and what a chef like Salt Bay are doing <laughs> and and not just stop at the fact that they're living in the same price range. Yeah, yeah I think what's, what's interesting, that's a, no, that's a good question, Lou, because I did notice with the British restaurant, there was starting to be quite a bit of a backlash towards the end. I think because they were saying, well, yeah, it it may be expensive and it may be Instagrammable, but the food wasn't that great mm-hmm. for, for what it was, and and they had to wait, or they weren't, you know, they were complaining about the service. And it's, I think it was interesting that maybe now that that is starting to come out, and like you said, it's not about the price because yeah. you can get similar restaurants. It's about whether, yeah, like you said, the value of the owner and the values yeah. that you're going to see as a customer. Yeah, it's about you as a consumer understanding what it is that you're actually after. Like you being a smart, intelligent spender of money. Like yeah. don't <laughs> don't conflate yeah. what's happening at a place like Black Tap Burger Bar. I don't know if you've heard of these. They're like milkshakes. It's like, you know, you got like this much milkshake and then you got like a foot of whipped cream and then like a birthday cake and like a firecracker <laughs> and then like you know what i mean and, and then there's like a puppy in there it's like they just, they just like keep trying to like one up how many things they can put into the milkshake and it's like if you go there looking for a good food experience then like you miss the fucking point yeah you know yeah. like and i think that it shows like a lack of um education for consumers to think like oh no i'm sure they found a way to make that milkshake good you know it's like well no they didn't like you're there for the picture and like it really kind of makes me concerned about you that you think that this like you know diabetes in a glass is gonna be like a good (laughs) good like example of food like it was obviously for the picture and you should be smart enough to know that you know i know you know exactly and like i said it's, it's all relative, right? Someone who earns 10 times as much as me is going to go to a restaurant where you're going to pay 10 times the price, right? I, it's, it's not a question of that. But mm-hmm. food, I think, goes back to something you said at the beginning. It needs to be enjoyed. So as long as, if that's what if that's what you enjoy, you know, fill your boots. But that's I'm, right. I'm going to go somewhere where I enjoy the food, whether it's a dollar or $200, you know? Here, here. I, could, I couldn't agree more. Like, like I said, if that's your thing, that's your thing. Yeah. But like, I see a lot of people being surprised by it, and that surprises me in return. Where it's yeah. like, why was this not good? And I'm like, what do you mean, why was it not good? It's obviously <laughs> like, like you weren't there for a good meal. You were there for a fucking Instagram picture. You know? Right. Well, look, so we're going to touch upon these themes, I think, anyway, in it. But what I really wanted to, to talk to you about was I thought it, you know, we'll do the obvious thing. I thought it'd be good for us to have a look at perceptions and reality of 
us how how Lou and I look at America and American food and food culture and <laughs> what your view is of the British food and food culture. I think it's so important that your audience understands how excited I am to do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which is really good. I'm glad. And I'm going to put my, my cards on the table now. I'm going to say a lot of, well, I won't necessarily speak flu, but a lot of mine and possibly Lou's is going to have come from TV. Yeah, yeah, all of mine have come from TV. <laughs> and I've got a couple of things from when I when I've been over over to the states a couple of times. So I, th- I think it's you probably got fish and chips from Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> <Yeah. week. laughs> um, and I think Lou, I think I actually might throw over to you first. So in terms of what, what do you want to throw at Brendan and see we could find out if it's true or not? <laughs> yeah, well, obviously I've never been to the states. And so as a result, I think my whole perception of American food and American culture, food culture has come from television um, and or viral stories that I've seen online. Um, So I think the biggest one that you can touch on that we see is probably the difference between um, us, the Brits and um, the States. It's just portion sizes in general. So I remember years ago, there was a restaurant in Vegas that went viral. It was called the Heart Attack Grill. And that's where they've got the scale outside and they weigh you. And if you weigh more than 350 pounds, I think you eat for free which is amazing, obviously. Um, but there was just huge portion sizes. I think they've got people dressed up as like doctors in there because yeah, they're making they have, the whole yeah. play on excess. And so that's the thing. I think the first, just, oh, this is terrible because it's all going to be stereotypes. I'm so sorry. Um, but the <laughs> no. first one is, is is like the excess almost, if that makes sense. But I, I, I want to say to you, Brendan, actually. It doesn't I, actually. I, well, I, I think that that's hilarious. Um, yeah. Sorry. Well, I was going to yeah. say, I just wanted to add to that to actually find out if, you guys do see it as big portions because I've got a couple of examples. So we were in, uh, my partner and I, we were in the deep South. I think it was New Orleans. We went to a fish place and there was something on the menu which sounded brilliant and it was um, crawfish four ways. Mm -hmm. And so we asked the waitress, we said, you know, is this, because we've heard about the stories. We said, is this, do we have to share it or is it enough for one? She goes, oh, no, 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 it's it's enough for one. You you want want one each. Get it, my <laughs> God, the plate. It was it was like the size of the table. And so we left so much. Um, and over here, you normally get a bread roll with a little bit of butter to start the meal with. There, it was like hot potatoes. It was, it was, it was like baked potatoes on the plate. So we'd already had a meal, it felt like. <laughs> and the second story, though, it was it was a funnier one. We were in New York and we went to this pizza place and we said, Oh, we'll have um a pizza each. And the waitress, she goes, You're from you're British, aren't you? And we said and we go, Yeah, she goes. You might want to have one. She goes, because they're quite big. And she pointed to a customer. And she goes, that's the size. And we said, yeah, thank you. We'll just have the one, which, which I thought was great because she's, you know, she's she's got us out of ordering two for, for one, uh-huh. which over here is, is you, you know, you wouldn't get that. So so I guess is there a perception in, you know, in America? Do you think your portion sizes are big over there? Yes. <laughs> that's not even, yeah i think it's ridiculous me and my wife talk about this all the time like so i live in america i'm a chef over here i am i uh, i was born and raised in the deep south actually i'm from alabama which is really okay. close to louisiana which is where new orleans is i am very familiar with the ridiculous portion sizes and it's something that uh, i personally take issue with but it's true like just because i have i take issue with it doesn't mean that it's false <laughs> you know um and it's not just that like people love their big menus like you'll have like a book you go to a diner and it's like 12 pages worth yeah. of like 
uh, things that you could order and every single one is way too much for you. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it really is like this, this kind of excess and people get pissed off over here. Just to add to the stereotype, people get pissed off when you try to take away those, uh, that excess. I think, uh, All right. I think it was de Blasio who was talking about like discontinuing big gulps. At, <laughs> yeah. I don't know I, if you've heard of I remember of it. that. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know if you've seen one of these cups, but it's like bigger yeah. than a, it's like as big as a two liter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And it's like a personal like two liter of just fucking sugar water. And and he was like, maybe we should have these be a little bit smaller. And they they drug them through the streets. <laughs> it <was> I, <laughs> ridiculous. It's, it's, it's the free refills you've got as well. I remember we were sitting at a restaurant once, so we were ordering a drink, thing. and then the waitress comes out and fills up our glasses. We said, no, no, we didn't order anything. We didn't order another one. She goes, no, these are free refills. And <laughs> about half hour into the meal, we were actually covering our glasses every time this waitress walked by because we're not <laughs> yeah. used to that. We only, like, one glass, maybe two glasses of soda in the meal, and we're done. But, you know, they were just coming out and just filling it up all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love that. It's uh, There was a patent Oswald sketch where he's like, you want some soda, motherfucker? <laughs> no! <laughs> Do that! <laughs> so, so is there an awareness or, or is there any kind of stats on like food wastage over there? I mean, because I can imagine it's got to be high. I will say that, yes, it is. It's a big problem. It's something that I would consider to be a, uh, a core issue for me, something that within my life I would like to try and address better is the issue with food waste. Uh, I will also say that you find a lot of these people, I mean, we have our sensibles and we have our unsensibles, right? And the sensibles like those big portions because they like to take home half of it and have their breakfast already planned out in the morning. And it has a lot to do with, you know, uh, the working culture over here and how you've always got to be turned on and... Um, you know, I, I thought that it was this rare thing that as a chef, I've been working, you know, 12 hour, 12 hour days, uh, five to six days a week for 20 years. I was like, oh, I've just worked so much more than everybody. I'm a hustler. And I realized that everybody's kind of doing that. And I'm like, it starts making sense that you don't want to like those leftovers. That's like, a, that's a second easy meal. So it's like, you get to treat yourself by going out and then you get to, and, but that's the sensible. Those, those are the sensible people. And even though they are sensible within that structure, I would still say the structure's bad. Like, I think that excess is a really big issue. I, I'm a huge fan of Japanese philosophy as far as eating is concerned. And um, okay. I don't know how traditionalist this is. I don't know how ubiquitous it is. But I was told by somebody when me and my wife were over there that the way that they view hunger is that you satiate it up to 80%. You eat until you're 80% full and then you stop. And that you should always feel like a little hungry and All that right. that should be like a driving factor in your life. You know? Okay. Now, to get back to like how the U.S. is with excess and their plate sizes, that would be like you get drugged through the street. The second like you should be a little bit hungry all the time. Like it's it's healthy for you. Like it helps keep you sharp. Like it's, you know, the quest for food is one of the driving biological principles of our species. You know, so having just a little bit of manageable hunger that you deal with all the time is actually something that uh sort of ties into a kind of enlightenment in several different major religions across the world, not just in Japan with Shintoism. But but you say that over here. It's not just the plates are excessive. It's like they're expected to be excessive. Yeah. Like, it's not just an accident that they are. It's not just like people not understanding portion size. It's like you get dragged out in the streets. If you, bring, if you like, give me one of those dinky little plates, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's expected, and that's the problem. Yeah, be say. prepared when you come over here. Then, yeah. <laughs> I actually like the I like the whole like eating the right amount instead of yeah. you know what I mean. Like, can I have two of those pizzas, or can you double up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's almost like um. <laughs> Uh, what is it when you, when it's the summertime and you're like, well, you can always, or when it's the wintertime, instead of turning the AC on, you can always put on another sweater, right? Yeah. If you have options. Yeah. Um, like you can always order another pizza if you're hungry. Like being hungry is something that you have a solution for. I think when people feel like embarrassingly full, which is something I see happen here a lot, like people getting to the point where they're like, oh, I ate too much, (laughs) you know, that happens a lot. Um, there's not really a solution for that. You can't like take some of your fullness off, but hunger, you can always add a little bit more food to the mix. (laughs) You know, I don't know how profound a point that is, (laughs) but it is something that I have thought about. It is actually a nice way of looking at it though, because I'm sitting here thinking now, I'm like, how many times in my life have I eaten and then felt awful after dinner because I realized that I've overeaten. In reality, it's a really good point. Like today, I've gone to dinner, literally today, and we've gone to a Thai restaurant, and I've sat there, and we've eaten, and we've ordered probably what is one dish too many. I've sat there and struggled <laughs> through it, as opposed to wanting to leave it, because I feel like it would be offensive to leave it on the plate, when in actual <laughs> fact, I should have just been reasonable to begin with when I sat down and thought, right, think with my head, not with my stomach. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. All right, so I guess I got to send one back to you as far as British food is concerned. Um, I know everybody kind of views British food as being sort of mundane, sort of uh, yeah. boring. Uh, you, I think the, the full English breakfast is something that's like, I think it's not understood over here. I know better. I know Marco Pierre White. I know um, Fergus Henderson. I know Hugh Fernsley Whittingstall. Like these are amazing British chefs that are really changing the game. Uh, but one of the things that it's it's hard for me to be objective about like what the mass because I know like kind of more about the truth. I know that you guys had a very big beef issue like in the 80s, and that it was very difficult to get good beef in uh, England for quite a while. And um, I think that that kind of led to this perception of British food being more about like gravies and uh, not about like steaks. And um, I think that you kind of have a similar origin, like the US and England were very together and then they split off for obvious reasons. I don't think I need to talk down to your audience (laughs) to explain that one. Um, But uh, yeah, I, I think that the regulatory function of like your agricultural bodies has been a lot stricter in England. So I think your food ends up being uh, a little bit cleaner than ours, but I think that it also ends up um, like you don't have like access to the variety that we do. And that's kind of a perception that I have yeah. about British food. Like you're not going to go to the butcher market and see like, you know, at, at like your standard grocery store, like you could go to a butcher, yeah. but yeah, if you yeah. go to your standard grocery store, you're not going to see like everything that's available uh, at like a U.S. supermarket. I think it's fair what you say. I think we have, well, we were maintaining really strict standards, I think, but now we've left the EU again, which is a whole other thing we won't go into. I think there are stories coming out that may mean that we aren't following as strict to food standards as we probably were beforehand. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what you you were saying, yeah, is, and I think that's fair to say, Lou, isn't it, that 
yeah, you could go into a supermarket, you can get a cut of meat. But I think what we miss here is being able to get good quality meat at an affordable price. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's the key thing. Yeah, I think so as well. I think that if you were to go to standard supermarkets in reality and you wanted decent steaks, you'd probably struggle in reality as well because there's not a variety of even steak in reality if you want different cuts and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing like you've got a sirloin if you're at a posher supermarket you might be able to get a ribeye i think that's probably about it if you were to go into any kind of standard supermarket the way i'd explain it is whenever i go on holidays especially certain countries i will pretty much have steak most days because i know that i'm going (laughs) to get i'm going to enjoy it i mean like i said here yeah you could go into a butcher and you could get really good meat like i said i'm not trying to say that britain doesn't have good food it's just here it's the affordability element of it yeah yeah and availability element of it i think is totally different whereas you know like i said i don't don't know you you can school me on the truth here but it's like i I can go into walmart and i can see loads of meat that looks good i don't know if it is or not but here like lou said you'd get a few cuts of meat and it's hit or miss if you if you cook it right if you kick it spot on (laughs) and and the sun is in the right position and the wind's blowing at the right speed you'll, you'll make it taste good yeah, yeah, that's a, that's right. You know, um, I think I like, I like your system a little bit better because I think that you went through a long period of figuring out what your regulations were in England that we never went through here. Like every time we start thinking about regulations, it gets back to that excess thing where it's like, oh well, we started big and now we just get mad whenever anybody tries to take anything away from us. <laughs> you know, like yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of how we do things, which I find really frustrating because I think that there's a better approach, right? I think that having access to all these individual cuts the way that we do over here is problematic because if you know if I can use a chicken just for simplicity's sake, I feel like like in the meat world chicken is like uh you know a divisible by five kind of thing where it's like a cow you know like there's only like four things on a chicken a cow has like a hundred you know so we're gonna from the lens of a chicken like there isn't the same social perception about like the leg as the breast like more people like breasts for whatever god awful reason in this country so every time you break that bird down and you sell the breasts and the legs separately you're gonna sell more breasts than you sell legs Mm -hmm. right like selling whole animals is actually a significantly better way to do things instead of breaking them down into all the individual steaks like nobody's gonna order the amount of brisket that they would um you know, the sirloin or the chuck or the ribeye, mm. you know, because it's more expensive and it's harder to cook. So uh, you end up having to kill more cows just to satiate the need for these specific kinds of steaks. And uh, I think that what you see in England, at least from my perspective and what I've read about it, is you see like this long history of regulation that has put you in the position where you actually have some of the better beef in the world right now, I think. And the fact that it's not as affordable as it is in this country, in the US, um, I don't view as being a huge problem because the reason that it's affordable over here is uh, tied into a lot of things that have made some of our issues subversive. Like beef for us is cheap because this guy uh, who started um, Iowa Beef Packers, IBP, looked at a refrigerated truck and said, a cow is an odd shape. And if I send half a cow across country, I'm shipping bones and fat and things that people don't eat. So we started breaking everything down into like things that fit into boxes that can stack and then go onto a truck a lot easier. 
And uh, that saved him a lot of money because he's not spending, you know, transportation dollars to ship things that people aren't going to eat. Consequently, what ended up happening was everything was sort of turned into this assembly line to put things into boxes, which undermined the butcher's union, which uh, ended up, you know, like drastically reducing the quality, the actual quality of the meat that we have. So we've got access to a filet mignon, but I'm here to tell you that if you go to uh, the River Cottage where Hugh Fernsley Whittingstall is and you get one of his filet mignons or one of his ribeyes, it's going to cost more, but it's going to like change your life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Instead of like, you know, I'm here to tell you, like people could afford it in the 80s. They could kind of afford it in the 90s, less so in the aughts. And now it's hitting the point at our supermarkets where it's like this selling things at a really cheap price just so that we have access to it we're feeling the burn of that now like we're feeling Mm. like this lack of access like it's not sustainable it's not happening anymore like our our supermarket shelves are starting to become barren um as it turns out production for the sake of production wasn't the best approach and like people demanding things to be affordable at all times every day kind of trained us to expect the excess and not really think about what the right approach to eating is. Um, And I don't see that as being quite as big of a problem over in England. Uh, That being said, I still don't fully understand English breakfast. (laughs) Oh, do you know what? English (laughs) breakfast is one of the best things. Lou, what's your view? I mean, I love an English breakfast. You know what? This is terrible because today, um, (laughs) you you won't see this if you're listening to this, but I'm in a different background to where I usually would be. And I actually had um, a full English today and it was awful today really it was terrible oh i'm telling you it was terrible the bacon was terrible and it was soggy the sausages would you know those ones that you get that are like um the the like 40 percent actual meat and then 60 percent magic or whatever else is in it <laughs> it was one of them soy protein <laughs> yeah you're in a hotel today what did you have it at a hotel restaurant no no i had it at a different hotel i've actually moved um okay. but but no yeah it was it was i, I sat there i was just like this and, and i've thought about coming on this i was like this would definitely not be the type of full english i would turn around and do <laughs> but what i would say about the full english show is it's, it's it's something well most people i would only have once in a while you wouldn't have it regularly yeah yeah that's what i have to say yeah it's, 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 it's an occasion thing i yeah. think yeah. okay <laughs> Okay, I think the perception over here is like that's how you start your morning every morning. <laughs> oh, wait, oh wait. Like, how? <laughs> <laughs> but but it's um but I, what I love about it is we call it uh, English breakfast, but you can have it any time of day and it still makes sense. It's yeah. you know, yeah. it's and perfect. you know what? That's one thing. Do you know if you go to like pubs and that sort of thing here, they always have an all day English breakfast that's just available from <laughs> yeah. seven o'clock in the morning until eleven o'clock at night. The kitchen will <laughs> always cook you a full English if you want one any time of day. So that's going to be, you're going to have your beans, you're going to have your sausage, you're going to have your bacon, you're going to have your eggs, you're going to have your toast. Am I missing anything on that? Tomatoes. Oh, mushrooms sometimes as well. Black pudding. Black pudding. Hate black pudding. Awful, awful thing. Hash browns. If I don't know if you black said pudding, hash like that's the the blood. Yeah, yeah, blood yeah. Pudding, right? Never liked it. Yeah. yeah, never liked it. What about you, Dan? Do you like blood pudding? I do. I don't have it often. It was a food I avoided for a number of years, and then at a company I worked at, they used to do breakfast Friday, where the canteen would do an English breakfast, and mm. I didn't used to go for it. And then I was the only person left answering all the calls and taking all the work. So <laughs> I said, at one point, I said, "No, I'm going to go. I'm going to have this as well." 
and it had the black pudding in it and I thought right I'm not going to be that person who all of a sudden starts pushing it to the side so I tried it and I found it's actually quite nice <laughs> yeah it takes a little bit um blood was something that was difficult for me to get in on board with that would tie into what I was saying about the butchers earlier you break everything apart like yeah. how many That's true, cows yeah. do you have to kill and throw away the blood without yeah. like actually utilizing it you know um it took me a while to get on board with it too, though. <laughs> but that being said, I've had some really, really good blood sausages in the last couple of years. I got invited to this Argentinian asado. Oh, yeah. uh, a friend of mine was dating this Argentinian guy, and he was like, you, coming with me. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And uh, I went. I was the only guy who didn't speak Spanish there. Um, I was one of only two white guys. So I'm just like really out of place where i'm like just smiling i'm like this is fun i still had a great time uh but they were doing this asado and one of the things that uh they do they drink uh fernet and they grill all of these meats and it's just like a meat festival where everybody's like and they don't you don't pour your own glass of fernet you like pass around this bottle and if you want it like you get to hold on to it until somebody comes over and says like i want that and then you have to give it to them so it's like a very social way of drinking but one of the things that they do every every weekend for this asado is they make this blood sausage and it was the first time that i had it i was like this is great and that ties back i think in my head to what I was saying about sitting down at the table and the enjoyment of food yeah, and yeah. being around people. Like I'm at this point where it's like, I am super aware that I'm like the odd person out. I'm super aware that I'm being invited and this is like a friendly thing and like, you know, almost an outreach. Like I almost feel like, cause I don't speak Spanish. I'm the nerdy guy. And it's like, I've been invited <laughs> to hang out at the cool people table and like everything they gave me just tasted so much better. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't done up by some celebrity chef in some like, yeah, yeah. you know, fancy exclusive restaurant. It was in somebody's backyard in like yeah. a grill that they their grandfather built themselves serving a food that I had never liked. And something about like just being around all these people in this at, in this atmosphere and this attitude. I took one bite. and It just like i gotta sit down <laughs> i am loving this like actually give me the fernet you know what I mean? well, well that's it. well we we grew up our family's italian and it's exactly that you know our, our kind of like childhood growing up was made of yeah like three or four families around one house all outside yeah the, the barbecue's going my, you know my dad and my uncle was probably at the barbecue for most of the day and then the, the homemade wine comes out and like i said it's 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 almost like the the, the enjoyment you're having overtakes anything else you know so that, mm. that like you said i can absolutely imagine why you get more into the the food because of the occasion it's people you know like mm. I, I know a million ways to cook amazing food like probably literally maybe not literally millions but like i know a lot <laughs> about food and cooking it and how to make it good and the one thing that like my history and the industry has taught me is that it's always better when you're in the right frame of mind, right? And you're in the right frame of mind when you're around people you care about and you see that they're enjoying it too. Um, So that's something that I always strive for. And I think this, you know, one of your, one of your original questions about, um, you know, uh, Oh God, I lost my train of thought there. (laughs) I hate it when that happens. I always try to make these grand sweeping points and then like... Well, tell you what, then I'm going to jump in then, though, and I'm going to take you back to what you said at the start of your point, though. The the one thing I would, if I could think, what does an American think of of British food? And you Mm -hmm. kind of said it, I think the perception is bland. It's it's not, you know, it's not very exciting. And in a way, I think that's kind of correct. But I think what the British, what, what we do over here is 
it's a lot of homely food. I think it's that stodgy that, mm-hmm. you know, like we said, it's it's a shepherd's pie. It's the, you know, it's the roast dinners. It's that kind of filling homely stodgy food rather than anything that's going to like wow you if you look if you were looking down it on a menu but you know I, I I mean I love all my pies and I love all my you know gravies and sauces <laughs> and stuff like that so yeah you mentioned uh pasties there's this place called the sunken hundreds in Brooklyn that shut down a couple of years ago but it was a Welsh pub that oh, wow. did like all this really cool work with seaweed that I had never seen like I had no idea that seaweed or laver is such a um such a big part of Welsh cooking, but uh, they made this uh, laver mustard and they served a Welsh pasty with this laver mustard that was just really, 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 really good. Like really good. <laughs> it kind of blew my mind a little bit. And um, I think the perception is that, uh, that British food can be kind of bland, but I think that that's kind of like, I don't know if that's just a U.S. thing. Like, do you get that from other cultures? Like, do other cultures look at British food and say, like, are the Italians and the French like, meh, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, I think the impression, like, well, I think the impression of English food is it's just all potatoes. It's whatever you have, you've got potatoes on the side of it. <laughs> everything's just beige, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's the word my other half said to use. Yeah, it's beige. It is. Everything's just beige. You look at like any any kind of dinner. That's I feel like that's the perspective that everyone has. But as well. Well, linking to what you'd said previously about kind of the way that it is as well with everything being quite stodgy I feel like there are some like famous things that you would know so pasties for instance um I think are made with the really thick crust around the edge and that's because traditionally it was seen as a meal for miners and the reason that you had the thick pastry was that you could eat the bit with the filling in it and you could throw the thick pastry away because it was almost like your handle and that's just something that stayed as a staple and I think the history behind kind of meals like that is quite cool as a as a kind of point so it's nice to have that kind of historical link with it as well as much as that it might all be beige yeah (laughs) i i want to i want to throw something in now it's my turn and i'm going to go for the big one right from our side anyway tipping (laughs) oh god (laughs) yeah no so yeah yeah, yeah. so it might not be big for you brendan but i think what what's always funny is um (laughs) yeah the because over here so, so we do have tips over here you can tip your restaurants but it's not as like we hear stories of in the states that they will chase you out down the street if you don't leave a tip at a restaurant and it you know it feels like there's um there's it's a bit the, exaggerated but <laughs> the, the the emotional context is not far off yeah and and it's it's true because what i read is i'm actually um looking at going on holiday soon and it's it's, it's actually it's going to be in Italy. And what I saw, you know, I've been looking at these travel blogs and it's someone saying, look, the area we're going to, the, the actual, the, the food places pay their, their staff really well. But because of the influx of American tourists, they're now starting to expect tips over there as well, even though I think <laughs> that they, they are paid well. So the question I was going to ask is, so are... Are kind of in food establishments are are they paid that little is it, is it still a case where you know the money is really made through the tips uh the the so the short answer is we're working on it um i will say the last restaurant i was uh, i was overseeing we did about 100k a week and um I don't know. Does that translate? Uh, as far as pounds are concerned, that would probably be like 90,000 pounds a yeah. week. Somewhere yeah, yeah, around there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
I, as I was running this restaurant that was, you know, undeniably successful, I was paying people a couple of bucks over the minimum wage starting. I was very intentional about who I hired. My dishwasher was making 17 bucks an hour, um, which is more than I made when I was under David Chang at Sambar when I was making overtime. Over here, you work 40 hours. Any hour over 40, you get paid time and a half. So if you make 10 bucks, then your 41st hour and beyond, you're making 15 bucks. So I was paying people more than I was making overtime back when I was, you know, low down. Mm. Um, I didn't work as a manager at a restaurant that underpaid people. That was a big ethical issue for me. But I believe that there are still a lot of places that can get away with paying servers something to the tune of like four bucks per hour. Wow. Um, And then say, you know, well, you've got to make tips in order to bridge the gap between uh, what we're paying you in minimum wage. And then they have to declare those tips. And if what they declared is uh, less than minimum wage, then the employer has to fill the difference. Oh, really? Okay. That's uh, that's what I understand. Um, I think that, again, I, I think I've made it pretty clear that I believe in paying people mm. uh, proper wages. I think that if you can't afford to, then you don't have a business. <laughs> you know, yeah. like That's, that's kind of what I believe in my heart of hearts. I know it's not that simple, but I would like for it to be that simple. Uh, short, I, I guess to get back to your actual question, the short answer is yes, that is the case. No, it's not as pervasive as you've probably heard it is. You know, yeah. like the second you hear that somebody's getting treated like shit, you're like, everybody's getting treated like shit. It's like, well, <laughs> no, not everybody, but it is a problem that does still need a little bit of work to resolve. Yeah. Final answer, lock it in. <laughs> it's strange to me as well how the legislation allows an employer to get away with essentially having somebody that works for them make minimum wage based on whether or not they're lucky enough to get enough customers through the door that are generous enough to basically top it up. It's a really strange concept and I'm struggling to find how the law can allow that to happen almost. So I don't know. Do you think it incentivizes it? Yeah. 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 Do you think that that's something that in, in terms of kind of change and so for instance, like legislative change, do you think that that's where it needs to come then? Legislative change? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only place change can really happen in this country is through Congress. Congress is the one that writes the rules. And um, I don't know how up you are on American politics, but Congress is currently filled with, uh, in the lower house, the House of Representatives is filled with people like Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, who are more interested in like the shock rock politics about like, uh, v- victimizing, like self-identifying as victims or whatever, than they are about like these kinds of issues. You know, they're more like, why can't I use the n-word on TV as opposed to like, why aren't people getting paid properly? <laughs> you know, like, right. yeah. because yeah. it like yeah. it gets a rise out of people. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about, like not um, understanding the difference between entertainment and food. Uh, you could replace the word food with sustenance, and I think that. There is a sustenance that happens with politics as well. Um, And I think that the conflation between food and entertainment is something that's a little bit deeper because our inability to tell the difference 
bleeds over into other aspects of our life. We can't tell who's a good politician or somebody who's just able to run a good social media account. We can't tell who's got a good point or somebody who just gets me pissed off the way I like to be pissed off. You know, <laughs> and so short answer to your question, I, I never have short answers, but the shortest <laughs> answer I can muster is, yes, it has to happen on a legislative le- level because that's the only place that it can. They're the only ones that write the laws. They don't enforce the laws. The Supreme Court and the judicial system uh, enforce the laws, but the legislative branch and Congress, which is the Senate and the House of Representatives, are the ones that write the laws. So if there is going to be a change, that's where it's going to happen. Um, but I don't think it will anytime soon. And so- <laughs> As well, with types of restaurants, for instance, is it more so a problem with fast food places, more so independence? Where where do you think the biggest issue when it comes to pay in that respect is? Well, the biggest issue is that, uh, well, it's the problem is equal on both fronts. Like they're not separable. They're both a part of the same industry. Fast food restaurants are more successful because of what I was talking about earlier, where they can hire more people, thus they can get discounts on having to pay insurance and taxes on their employees because they've got 400 of them. So they get like an 80% discount because they brought in bulk, you know, and then you have the independent restaurants that have to cut wages just so that they can compete with the people that are able to get that kind of discount so it's an incentive it's incentivizing uh businesses to kind of operate in this way and that's the legislation that would need to change is for that to no longer be the thing that makes us successful is you know preying upon our laboring class (laughs) brendan have you got one to throw at us now uh okay um I hear that you guys love Indian food. <laughs> oh, well, this, this. We, were, we were just talking about it before we joined, actually. This is unbelievable. I, I literally said to Dan before this started, I was just like, I'm sure I saw a statistic somewhere that said that London had more um, like Indian restaurants than Delhi itself. Yeah, we, um, we do. It is a national dish pretty much now, isn't it? Yeah, it's honestly, it is follow, unbelievable. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, funnily enough, I've never, I don't think really been particularly fond of Indian food but I think that that's because I feel like we've got quite a lot of variety so you don't <laughs> this is terrible you don't go out and eat English to yeah, be honest yeah. you go out and you eat Italian or you eat Chinese or you eat Indian that yeah. sort of thing but I feel like Indian's probably on my lower rung of oh, frequently no, I visited love, I love an, I, think. I love an Indian meal and and again I think it goes back to to what we we're saying at the start if, if you go to like a decent place an authentic one it's also the experience, like the staff, they, they've got that care and they want to look after you and they, you know, they want to make sure you have really good, good meal and they, you know, they want to help you. But I was actually, this feeds back into a question back to you as well. So yes, we, we love Indian food over here. And I, what I was going to say is I think international food over here is also more commonplace. You can go, you don't have to go into a big town, even say the towns we live in, you'll guarantee there's going to be an Italian there's going to be a Chinese and there's going to be Indian, minimum yeah. those three. But now we're seeing more uh, Vietnamese, Malaysian, Turkish. You know, I've seen it really sort of. I love Turkish food. Yeah, it, yeah it, Turkish you know, is brilliant. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. It's it's even in your smaller towns, your smaller places, we can kind of eat around the world. You, you know, I mean, that sounds a bit uh, exaggerated, but we, we do have such a, a good selection of foods and and I was going to ask on a similar vein, if you went to a, a middle, you know, a small to middling town somewhere in the States, is there like that variety of international cuisine there as well? Uh, short answer, yes. 
Okay. Uh, I, I think it ties back to our colonialist backgrounds. Like that was a thing that uh, that we did as colonialists, or at least our ancestors did as colonialists. Was we went out into the world and we we're like, "What do we like? Let's bring it back." And let's, yeah. that's that's our thing now, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that that's definitely something that we share. There's no such thing really as American food anymore. There's no such thing as British food really anymore, in my opinion. I think that's something that both of our cultures, uh, at least from a culinary perspective, share. Like indigenous American food is what, uh, you know, they were cooking up before uh, the colonists arrived here. Like there was a very robust food culture. Uh, nixtamalization was a thing. That's how you make... Uh, <laughs> taco shells that's how you make grits we were talking about grits yeah. Nixtamalization <laughs> is treating corn with lye to yeah. harden it that's how you make hominy that's how you make pozole that that was an indigenous technique that that was something that happened here cooking food over hickory barbecue that was an indigenous oh, yeah. technique like cooking uh beans with greens what we would call hop and john down in the south indigenous technique you look at fried chicken. That's something that the U.S. is kind of like, oh, well, that's a U.S. It wasn't, it's actually a Scottish technique mixed with like it's a, it's a Scottish preparation mixed with an African technique, you know. Um, so like what we had when, you know, the indigenous cultures in this country were uh, were prominent was this very robust regionality. That's the same thing as you would see in Italy. You're Italian. You yeah. go to Naples. That's where pizza's from. But you go up to like Lazio where uh, Rome is and you've got um like a lot of food that you probably wouldn't recognize they they love awful which is like the offcuts mm. of fig. like you'll you'll see a lot of stuff that you know you wouldn't expect you go to emilia romano or like parma is that's where parmesan and uh prosciutto are from you go up to veneto that's where you've got your risotto etc like they're all very different cuisines that all fall distinctly under the blanket of italian and america the u.s before uh, you know, the colonists kind of took over the indigenous population, had the same thing going on, like clam bakes in the north, barbecue in the south, uh, tortillas in the southwest. Um, this was all very real. These were very real uh, regional dishes. Um, but it's not the case anymore. What we did in place of that was we went out and we looked for, now we do have the Italian restaurant and the Chinese restaurant and the Indian restaurant. Those are all things like I was living in the sticks up until like a week ago, you know, that I moved. <laughs> um, and all of those things were available out there. But I would say that they are all shadows of their former selves. Like right. the interesting thing about like, the relationship between Indian cuisine and England is the occupation of India by England happened until 1949. And India was known as like a very home cookie kind of place. They had like uh, very big estates where people would come to and there'd be like chefs that would make at the house. They didn't have restaurants in the sense that we do until the British were like, we need restaurants during the occupation. So the funny thing is, is that like these Indian restaurants were actually something that were originally kind of made popular uh, to appease these occupiers to a degree. They were at least influenced by it. Like India was capable of making their own things before the British were here. But a large part of its evolution was to try and appease British occupiers. And it's just interesting to see how like now Britain is sort of uh or england is sort of housing a lot of these people and a lot of these cultures you know anyways well, well, you can tell i get excited about this like my brain is just like all <laughs> no no world. it's brilliant it's brilliant i mean we like, like like we said we were talking about this before we joined and yeah the, the funny thing is if you took 
the menu probably of an Indian restaurant here over to India, they probably wouldn't recognize half of it because, yeah. like the chicken tikka, yeah. I think you said it was invented in in Birmingham here. I think, yeah, you know, and they don't see it. It's not an authentic Indian dish. Yeah. <laughs> curry in general came from Portugal. Like the idea for curry came from Portugal. Like the the blanket concept of curry as we know it. Like curries are absolutely Indian in their flavors and their sensibilities mm. and their ingredients. But this preparation and the way that it's like been implanted into the idea of a restaurant kind of owes a bit of its origin to Portugal, you know? Right, and right. yeah, it's, it's just, I find all that so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just so cool. Anyways, I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> no, getting, no. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about in the States? So is there like a really wide variation in regional foods and flavors? Cause I get the impression, I feel there is, but I don't know if that's, Fair or not. There are a couple of places in the U.S. that I would argue have their own food culture that has developed since the indigenous uh, takeover. And uh, that would be San Francisco with uh, Chiapinos and the um, the work that they've done on uh, advancing baking, uh, specifically bread baking and sourdoughs. Yeah. Uh, you go to New England, um, clam bakes were originally uh, an indigenous thing, but they've kind of been taken to the next level with like lobster boils and um, lobster rolls and uh, saisons and all this uh, different kind of cracker making, like uh, oyster crackers is something that uh, was kind of, I would say, perfected. So you have like a, a unique culture in New England. You've been to New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. I think, has one of the unique cultures in the U.S. Uh, the difference between Creole and Cajun is something that I'm interested in putting in a, uh, an episode together for because I don't think a lot of people know the difference between Creole and Cajun. Um, I think that they're kind of interchangeable in a lot of people's minds. But you look at uh, both of them, and they do have similar... It, they have edifé, they have jambalaya, they have, um, you know, uh, crawfish and a lot of really great food. And then they have like this difference in how the information was handed down year over year over year. Because like one of this these groups of people had access to like a written system and the other didn't. Right. Based yeah. off like wealth and income and it's yeah. education, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so um, that would be the closest thing to regionality we have. Barbecue, there's an argument for. I'm from Alabama. We got a white barbecue sauce. South Carolina is known for mustard. Uh, you got Kentucky cooks mutton. St. Louis cooks ribs. Texas cooks brisket with tomato-based barbecue sauce. Um, so there's there are some things that you can uncover regionally. But you get into what you're talking about where every place has to even – the backest of backwoods place they're all going to have an italian restaurant they're all going to have like the chinese to go restaurant you know we, we just have over here obviously between like england wales scotland there's going to be variations but here whilst i do know things it's not to me anyway and lou tell me if i'm wrong for you it doesn't feel like within england there's a lot of famous variation in food so you'll get really random things so there's um in Wigan, they do something where they put a pie in a bread roll, and I think they call it a Wigan <laughs> kebab or something like that. You know, you get these crazy stories that come out. Actually, look, tell you what, we'll, we'll move on because I'm just conscious of time. Lou, have you got another? Have you got something that you want to throw at Brendan? I've got one quick question as well, um, and this kind of goes back to the food regulation stuff. Um, and this was about um, the difference between and the perception of. Um, and this was about like preservatives, additives, the way in which food is produced. Because when we left the EU here, I remember there were news stories that we heard for what was probably months. And it was all about American chlorinated chicken. 
That's <laughs> all we saw on television. Yeah. It was, we're going to get chlorinated chicken because that's we left right, the EU. Yeah. We're all going to die. We're going to get a, we're going to get a trade deal with the States and that's all they're going to sell us. Wow. And the fear mongering yeah. was horrific here. There are yeah. BBC stories, ITV. It was all over the news. It was, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing chlorinated chicken trade deal Brexit. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to know if there's, if, if, in the States, there's kind of a conscious concern about what might be in food, like we've had it kind of thrown at us here, or if it's kind of just something that's not really too much of a mainstream issue, I guess. Uh, I would say that, so one of the things about having so many regulatory practices is that we have our scares. We have like our peanut butter salmonella scares. We have our uh, swine flu, our African uh, swine flu scares. But I think that it's resolved so quickly that people don't even think about it. They're just like, oh, bacon's a little bit more expensive this week. And then they like move on with their life um, without like ever really being a wiser, the wiser as to what's happening in the background. Um, but uh, I don't know if that answers your question. There are the scares. We do hear about them, but I don't think that it registers because we're not as invested. You know? Yeah, I think that's what it was. When the news stories came out, the, the perception that I think the way that the media spun it here was, oh my God, it's all additives and it's all dangerous and we yeah. shouldn't have it. And then I can't yeah. remember who went on television and said, but you don't complain about eating chicken when you go on holiday to the States. So why would you complain about it even if it was here? <laughs> and I was like, it's a good point, to be fair. I was like, yeah, fair enough. If they're using chlorine to treat chicken, that's news to me. That's news to me. Like, I'm... Originally, the first episode that we were ever going to do for Unchef was this deep expose about like the big four. Uh, you have Purdue, um, you have uh, Pilgrim, you have uh, Tyson, you have the big chicken companies. And we were like really looking into their practices, how they were treating their workers, how they were treating the birds, what it means biologically for this organism. I never heard anything about chlorine. Chlorine's fucking deadly poisonous like i don't they're just significantly better and cheaper ways to you know like if you're gonna fuck up a bird and like put something that's not good for us into it like and this this is my whole thing about like the smart consumer it's like why would they do that like why would they put chlorine into a chicken like seriously stop for a second and think about why would they do that but that's <laughs> you know? what that's what exactly what i was gonna say on that is 99% of those people up in arms probably don't know how their food they eat now is prepared, but they yeah. hear a story or they read a story and it's it's the worst thing in the world, but they don't know yes. what it is now. Yeah, <laughs> yes. That is. yes, that's right. It's, that's um, right. It's like, actually, going back to, because uh, people, the, 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 the lack of knowledge of food can be quite scary and funny at times. So going back to something mm -hmm. you said earlier about, so yeah, in the 90s, it was, we had the mad cow disease. Uh, scare mm -hmm. here. Bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Yeah, or, or yeah, as as we called it here, or the tabloids mad cow disease. <laughs> and um, so mentioned our family owned a fish and chip shop, and we saw, and there there was a trade magazine that would come out monthly, and I'd read it while I was helping my dad out, and um, mm -hmm. there was an article saying obviously the the sale of um beef and onion pies plummeted. Because, you know, obviously beef, people were scared of it. But conversely, steak and kidney pies went up. So people went, <laughs> and, and it's like, what? And, and this is what I was thinking. What animal, do, do people think there's an animal called a steak that, that's roaming out there? What do they think the steak is? So they, they stopped buying beef and onion pie and bought steak and kidney. And it was, it was crazy. Hunting the wild steak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, but like you said, and it's just, I think how easily led people can be 
of these 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 stories mm-hmm. in the tabloids and and it's quite frightening to think that at times as well yeah and and not taking like that second logical step i don't know if you ever heard about this but like there's a burger king has a quarter pounder right like oh, yeah. that's one of the burgers it's called the quarter pounder it was originally going to be a half pounder but people were concerned it wasn't big enough so they wanted the quarter pounder because four is bigger than two. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I think it's a real problem that I hear that story and I'm like, check out. That sounds right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's oh, a problem that I hear that and I'm like, yeah, that probably happened. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so. oh, dear. Who's, who's up next? What have we got? I think um, we're going to make menus for each other now. Well, I actually, before we get to that, if it's all right, I had some really stereotypical things that you see in film and TV that's American food. And I wanted maybe for you to give us an, whether or not it's something that's just a common thing and if it's overrated or underrated. Okay. So some of these are going to be really stereotypical. And I'm so sorry <laughs> for it. In I'm, I'm excited about this. Let's do it. Okay. So I've got meatloaf, number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I like it? I like it. If it's done well, it can be done terribly. But if you do it right, it's... Yeah, I like it. Overrated or underrated? Uh, I'm going to say that it is. Uh, it was overrated for a very long time, and it has come back into a position of being underrated. Right. Okay. Okay. See, meatloaf is always one of those things that you see in film and TV is like the yeah. scary thing that the mum makes and the kid doesn't want to yeah. touch it and feeds it to the dog. That's yeah. kind of the perception that you've always seen it with. Um, yeah. I've got grits. I personally love grits. I made some right after. So we had the Twitter. Dan knows this. We had the, yeah. the Twitter message talking about grits. I made grits immediately after. That. Right. Grits are nixtamalized corn ground up. They're really creamy. That's, that's part of my heritage. I love it. See, again, only experience with that is my cousin Vinny. I've not had a grit. <laughs> Don't know what, 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 what is what a grit. What is a grit? <laughs> um, this one, I think, I can't remember where it came from. I think it was when the film 17 again. Cheese in a can. Oh God! Fuck that! <laughs> nope, can't get on board with it. Can't even. There's a thing. So I don't know if you ever heard of a Phil- Philadelphia uh, cheesesteak, the Philly cheesesteak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way that you order, like the cheesesteak, like I think the most popular story is this rivalry between Pat's and Geno's in Philly. One's on one side of the street, the other's on the other side of the street, and that's really the only difference. Like we're on the right, you're on the left. It's like a Dr. Seuss, like butter side up, butter side down, toast thing. Um, <laughs> And the way that you order it traditionally is uh, you say one and then the type of cheese. And then if you want onions with it, you say wit. So you'd say like one whiz wit would be the traditional order. That's one Philly cheese steak, cream cheese, or uh, uh, whiz cheese, like cheese whiz, and then fried onions. And that's the original Philly cheese steak. Um, and I do like that. I do like that. But um I would kill myself if I ate it more than like once, like <laughs> once a year, even. You know? Okay, I've got chicken and waffles. Love it. It's yeah. a lot of a lot of starch, but it's just like waffles are good, chickens are good, and I subscribe to the good plus good equals good theory of food. <laughs> <laughs> See, and these are all things that I would actually just love to try, just out of curiosity. I've got corn dogs. Corn dogs are great. I love corn dogs. Is that like a game day food type thing then? Uh, yeah, yeah, traditionally that or you're going to the fair, like it's an outside, like it's on a stick. The whole reason yeah. that it's on a stick yeah. is so that you can like walk around and socialize yeah. and eat. Um, but like a really well-made corn dog is something that I, I love. I've got no shame. I love them. <laughs> okay. A sloppy Joe. 
I uh, never understood them, but don't hate them, but don't love them. <laughs> it's just like it's like you take a meatloaf and then you like hit it with a baseball bat until it breaks apart, and then put even more ketchup on it, and then put a bun on it. And that's like, <laughs> I'd rather got, just have um, a meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got a couple more, um, and I've got a, a question as well. So I've got New York slice. Some uh, I've always wanted to try. <laughs> uh, it's pizza that you just can fold in half, essentially. Love it. <laughs> Love it. You got to get a good place. Like, uh, if you're ever in the States, hit me up. I'll show you a good New York slice. <laughs> okay, nice. And me and Dan were also talking about the difference because you've also got Chicago, which is like deep dish pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, and who rules supreme? <laughs> uh, well, Chicago deep dish pizza is really more of a casserole, in my opinion. So I got to go with the New York slice here. Uh, I will say this. You probably haven't heard of Detroit oh. pizza. Oh. Detroit pizza, I think, is in contention. Uh, Detroit pizza, you actually take like a loaf of bread and then you proof it until it's like puffed up and then you put the ingredients on and then you throw it in the oven. Right. Okay. So it's like really fluffy and light and airy, <laughs> but it's got like the same density. Well, not density, but it's got the same height as a Chicago slice. Um, but definitely New York over Chicago. I thought definitely. so. I'm always in favor of a thin pizza. I don't like anything that's <laughs> yeah, too thick. Yeah. Um, and also PB&Js don't really do that here. Uh I've never been a fan. I will say this about PB&J. It's a complete protein, which is good for a lot of people. Like, So <laughs> peanut butter, like you take a nut and then you take a grain and you have a complete protein. You have like all, thir- I think it's 13 essential amino acids to form a complete protein. So a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is a complete protein, which is part of the appeal. I think it's a, it's a smart way to help meet dietary needs for some people. <laughs> and that being said, just... I hate them. I, I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> and then one last thing to finish on. I feel like, when you see film and TV, ranch is on everything. No, ranch dressing. Ranch. Oh, ranch. <laughs> Ra- sorry, ranch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that's accurate. I guess people love ranch over here. They really do. I don't understand it. I don't. I, I hate ranch. I'm, I'm big on Chinese food. I, my condiments are all like spicy, crunchy, like chili based. Uh, I don't understand mayonnaise and, and ranch. <laughs> I have, I, I don't hate them, but like, it's not on everything for me, but yeah. you're not wrong for some people. It is. Right. I've, I've got one more question, but I guess we're going to have mm-hmm. to be strict with time. And this is, I absolutely know it's a cliche, but the impression if you are a, a British viewer watching American TV is you eat out all the time. You don't ever cook at home. It's, it's, you're, you're finishing work and you're coming home and you'll grab a slice of pizza or, or, or something. And it, it almost feels like home cooking is purely, as you said, if it's a big event or a family event. Now, I know that obviously can't be true, but it's just, yeah, the impression you get from TV. And, and I guess it's a vehicle to make, you know, it, people are out and about we can't have them go home and and show the meeting but it just feels like yeah the home cooking takes a back seat to eating out it does I mean, it does. I would, say, it? I would say that that's. I would say that that's accurate, and it's unfortunate because it's like you hit celebrity chef, and there's like a lot of respect. But anything below that, you're just a blue collar laborer. Like chefs right. aren't respected in the same way as like finance bros and tech analysts yeah. and you know media people. Like it's not viewed as being like a viable skill up until you like. For me, um, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I was a successful chef in New York city. And like, once you hit that point, then people start taking you seriously, but everything up until that point, you're just kind of a blue collar laborer who doesn't know shit about shit. Like you failed into being a cook, you know, Uh, until, until you hit a certain level of success, like it's viewed as being like a remainder for your day. Like, why do I have to spend time in the kitchen? Why, why don't I have people to do this for me? Uh, It ties back into this 
idea of American expectations of like giving me more. I'm going to give you less and you give me more and that's how it works. And right. Well, well, so much. (laughs) What I will say to finish on that is I have seen the funny thing I have seen of TikTok videos actually recently that are are mimicking it. But you'll see in the films in America, they will make a huge breakfast and you've got everything, but somebody will only take a sip of orange juice and then leave the house. They're too busy and there's like a table full of (laughs) breakfast food. (laughs) So so, so my view is in America, you only have a sip of orange juice for breakfast. (laughs) That's a. For me, uh, I I don't I don't really eat breakfast at all ever. It was this yeah. thing that was very highly publicized that breakfast was the most important meal of the day, yeah. and the reason for that was it was it had a lot of staple ingredients that tied very directly into the Department of Agriculture set up several uh, basic commodities in uh like our food systems corn was one which is used to make grits hogs were one used to make bacon and ham uh wheat is one which used to make toast cream of wheat etc uh another big one would be oh god i just lost uh milk sorry yeah Uh, (laughs) milk is another huge one and the basic commodity status basically said that like the fluctuation in price of these ingredients is going to have a huge impact on the fluctuation of price and other things in the market right like for instance uh milk might drastically affect an international commodity like coffee which we're not capable of really growing to any degree in this country so we have to regulate our food market through these specific ingredients. And we found that a lot of them fit into this basic idea of a meal. And we turned that meal into breakfast and then started saying it's the most important meal of the day. So when you watch TV and you see these people making these huge elaborate breakfasts, essentially that's marketing and saying like these commodities have importance and this is what it means to be American and you should too. And this is you kind of doing your duty to help support the basic commodity status of these ingredients in an attempt to do as much possible to regulate the market without even realizing that you're doing labor to begin with. <laughs> and it's okay. all through this like media perspective, like it's or this perception, like it's just kind of subliminally yeah. thrown into our faces all the time. And most yeah. people just haven't taken the red pill. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right, cool. Okay, right. I I mean, we're coming into the end of this now. I think what we'll do, I I think we said it, is let's give each other a a menu. And then, yeah, we'll give you a bit of time. We'll let you flog your your socials and everything or or your podcast. (laughs) And then then we'll wrap up. But um, actually, tell you what, we'll we'll do do the uh, British-American-British sandwich. So, Lou, do you want to go first? What would you serve to Brendan if he came around to yours? Now, do you know what? This is really terrible and it's difficult because I couldn't think of a starter. Oh, yeah. I was really struggling for starters. <laughs> I just thought to myself, I was just like, what would we have that would be considered like a traditional British starter? And I genuinely didn't have anything that could crop up. So I feel like Dan's going to have to take the starter and we're going to have to share that one. But I feel like, oh, do you want to start with starter then? I'll tell you what. Well, I'll give you, well, you one of mine. There's it's right two. there in the name. You start with starter. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can have one of mine. I was I was going to go two. We, we mentioned one last week, the prawn cocktail. Yeah, the prawn cocktail, <laughs> but I didn't know if that was like a, a, a traditionally Absolutely British starter. thing. Oh, well, whether it's traditionally British, I don't prob- know. Well, whether it's that, but we it was kind of very much a 70s, 80s, 90s thing. So I think it is now. It's one of those things. We probably serve it the poshest looking way as well. <laughs> yeah. in, in one of those crystal okay, glasses. You, you, you take yeah. that then. You... 
Right. For the main, I feel like if it was going to be British and it was going to be a staple, I feel like it would have to just be a roast. A proper okay. roast with like homemade um, Yorkshire puddings, yeah. cauliflower cheese, all of that sort of thing. I feel like that would have to be the main because I feel like you can't beat a good roast on a Sunday. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 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 dessert or pudding? Right, dessert. Arctic roll. <laughs> yeah. Arctic that's roll. Right. Arctic roll is like um vanilla ice cream wrapped in like sponge with like a raspberry or strawberry jam kind of in the middle. So you cut it into slices and then it's you like serve a it cylinder. Imagine yeah, like yeah. a tube of vanilla <laughs> ice cream encased in That sounds in a, like a baked yeah. Alaska almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess in a similar yeah, vein. Yeah, in a similar I way. love Arctic roll. <laughs> I guess it's like basically, (laughs) it's like a, (laughs) yeah, with the sponge on the outside, I guess if you made a Twinkie bigger and just put vanilla ice cream in the middle of it, (laughs) that's this kind of what, what that actually sounds, I would, I would, I would get down with that. I would actually, I would absolutely do that. Uh, Brendan, uh, what about you? All right. So I'm going for, I'm not like tying into my chefy like tendencies. I'm actually telling you like what a good, like snapshot of America in three courses would be right. Yeah. Okay. I would start with deviled eggs. I would okay, start yeah, with deviled eggs. Yeah. Deviled eggs is something that like I grew up with. I see them everywhere. It's one of the, everybody loves them. Nobody thinks about loving them, but as soon as you have one, you're like, oh, yeah, I, could, I could have another one. You know? <laughs> and then, like before you know it, you've eaten twelve, and you're like <laughs> looking around for more. <laughs> you know, um, that's a that's a pretty good start. So I don't you hard boil an egg, take the yolk out. Break it, mix it with like mayonnaise and paprika and mustard. Um, not heavy on the mayonnaise. It's not a very mayo-y dish, but then you pipe it back into the shell and then you like eat it. Yeah. You can put pickles on top. Like I, I particularly like it when it has a little bit of pickle on top. It cuts the heaviness. Uh, so yeah, I would start with that. Um, as far as a main is concerned, that would be a good snapshot of this country. Uh, it's not personally what I like to eat, but or at least it's not my favorite thing to eat. I do like it, but I would say something to the effect of a dry aged ribeye with um, uh, okay with a kind of uh, special accoutrement. With when I was at Sambar, we had a dry aged ribeye that we served with a nightly special accompaniment, and we did anything from like rosti. Have you heard of rosti? You know what rosti is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rosti would be one of the big ones that we would do. We'd serve them with. We'd make Parker House rolls occasionally, but we would always serve it with like this butter that we clarified and heated, and then we would throw like uh, twigs of thyme in, and it would come like bubbling to the table, and the herb butter would be like infused with thyme, and you could put it on the Parker House roll, get a little bit of like dry aged ribeye, and it was really good. And to me, that seemed like a very American dish because of like our love of steaks. Um, and as far as dessert is concerned, I'm going to go back into my southern roots and say uh, apple pie, but I'm going to subvert it. I'm going to give you something a little special here. Slice a bit of sharp cheddar and melt it on top of the apple pie. Really? Like that's actually, wow. yeah. Yeah, that's something that people do. <laughs> and it is fucking awesome. <laughs> like it oh, is I can have to. I can have full to try support that. of this cheddar cheese apple pie thing. Like, that I sounds cannot... really unusual. It's it's unusual, but the second you start tasting, it, you're like, wait a second. Well, what's a cheese plate? It's usually just bread and apple. It's bread and fruit and cheese. So what do you have yeah. here with this apple yeah, pie? Yeah, you have yeah. bread yeah, and fruit and true, cheese. Yeah. 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 So people think <laughs> first, and they're like, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's I logic, have never right? seen somebody taste it and be like, 
no, not for me. Like everybody's like, wow, when you're coming over, Brendan, when you're coming over, I <laughs> uh, man, I wanted to jump across the pond for so long. I love British culture, obviously British invasion music, Beatles, huge fan, uh, Dr. Who. I don't know if you guys <laughs> like Doctor Who, but I love. I feel like you have to like Doctor Who if you're British. Is that wrong? I think. I think you have to have at least seen a series of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've I've always been a fan of uh, of England. We actually used to watch Escape to the Countryside. Uh, me and my <laughs> yeah. wife. Like at some point, we're gonna escape to the country. We're like we're gonna live in Devon at some point. It's gonna happen. <laughs> Do it. Um, just for just my menu, I'll 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 be really quick. I'll 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 do the prawn cocktail for starter. The main was going to be fish and chips. I think you can't go wrong with that. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> the pudding, and mainly because of a couple of chats we've had, uh, it would be spotted dick with custard. So, <laughs> there you go. my so daughter my... got that wrong the other day. She's like, "What's that dessert they eat? You know, speckled cock." And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I obviously like that more. Oh, that's pretty. <laughs> she, she pretty immediately was like, "That's not right, is it?" <laughs> and we're like, oh, "No." <laughs> I'm telling you as well. I I guarantee you that spotted dick, whenever it's on the menu, doesn't get ordered specifically because you have to say to a wait to a waiter or a waitress, "I'd like the spotted dick, please." And there's always a level of uncomfortableness <laughs> that would come with that because everyone would be too embarrassed to do it. So I'm convinced it never gets served in restaurants. No, it's, it's not. Really? It's not very common actually because of yeah because of that. Gig you know when you're at school and stuff i actually um, lean into that shit i'm like give me the biggest spotted dick you got <laughs> you know? and the waiter's like are you serious about that I'm like, yeah give it to me <laughs> and then just like look them in the eye until like, it's like, super awkward <laughs> more i want more i want more give me more daddy. <laughs> um, oh look brendan it's been brilliant it's brilliant having you on um no re- real pleasure to, to have you on the show yeah a lot of fun do you want to plug your your, your podcast and where where we can hear you? Uh, sure. I've always wondered if I was just like, now nah, I'm good. <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody ever does that. But um, yeah, uh, name of the show is Unchefed. Uh, we've been in a bit of a low point because I've been moving my entire life across state. But we're about to get back into it. You can find us on basically any podcast network i think i i think we prefer that uh you listen to us on stitcher over any of the others but really if you're listening then we're happy uh we're on twitter at unchefed and instagram at unchefed show and we've got a website unchefed.com and that's basically everywhere you can oh, yeah, find us definitely we got a check. newsletter too if you want to sign up i'm going to get that back and running in the running soon <laughs> yeah, definitely check <laughs> it out <laughs> check them out check them out um Lou, before we say Agabas, i'm just going to quickly go through uh some of the the reviews because there's a couple of comments here um so this is going to be we're recording in a funny order but this is going to be for food month week one i've got that correct now <laughs> k this is so this is on on good pods we got k from the fuck my work life she said she's given us five stars and said we have kettles here but that was in your reference to your comment. Actually, that was a question we should have asked. Yeah, we should, yeah, yeah. I, genuinely, we we were talking about how how you make hot drinks and that sort of thing, and I was just like, but hang on a minute, they can't, they don't have kettles. How do they boil water on like the the cooker? Don't they? It's a pot noodle. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, pot noodle. That was. Um, Decaying with the boys, five stars. Josh from Talking Smack, five stars. Antonio from Cultworthy said, "Yeah, prawn cocktails and Viennetta was how he lives his life. So he's the classy <laughs> meal." Uh, Raphael from the Geeky Dad podcast, Justin from the Movie Wire, the Red Dove gave us five, and Shane from Shane and I gave us five. So thank you for those. Um, All good people. 
Yeah, no, good, good people, good people. Um, Lou, before we go, is there anything you want to say before we wrap up? Yeah, just that if you do leave us a bad review, we'll still read that. As yeah, well. yeah, yeah. All, all feedback, welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can get us at you can email us at castingviewspod at gmail dot com at I was going to say at, at unchefed. There you go. That was another plug. Yeah, it's, it's at, at <laughs> in your casting, brain, baby. <laughs> yeah, at casting views on Twitter. Um, we'll play out with. A live stream for the cure promo which again i think brendan is something you you let us know about so yeah so please check them out because they're, they're, they're trying to do really good things um and that. we'll finish with we know there's a lot of podcasts from which you can choose so we thank you for listening to casting views Hello everyone, my name is Nick. I'm the host of Nikolai's Kitchen and I'm also the host of the annual live stream for the cure. Livestream for the Cure is a charity event where we raise money with content creators and podcast partners from around the world for the Cancer Research Institute, a wonderful nonprofit researching cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This is a mission and a future that I truly believe in. And myself and my team worked tirelessly over the past five years to raise over $50,000 for this cause. This year, we're aiming for our biggest single goal to date of $20,000, and we cannot do it without your help. Please join us for the event May 19th through the 21st, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern for 45 hours of content from people all over the world. Together, we can bring hope for a future immune to cancer. The more eyes we reach, the more dollars we raise. Please help us in making this goal a reality. Together, we can make a difference.